You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. As we continue to make our way through uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, uh, while you're finding your place, um, let, me, let me tell you how much I appreciate uh, some of the sermon feedback I'm getting. Um, I'm getting some really good questions. Uh, you guys are, are really tuning in and checking in, and of course, you know, all the data stuff that Bobby and Pastor Bob and Pastor Ryan look at, they're tuned in all that and how many views and shares and all that stuff, but... I base it more on uh, the feedback I get through emails and uh, Facebook messages and those kinds of things, and I'm just I'm just very thankful uh, for you guys tuning in and and being faithful to that. Uh, I know it's different, and we can all kind of understand how valuable and how wonderful it is when we can gather back here, and we're all looking forward to that. But uh, I really appreciate the faithfulness of our fellowship and continuing to watch and tune into the videos. I'm very thankful for that. I have a confession that I need to make, and that is, and my wife is going, I know my wife's watching uh, this morning. I know she's going to grin when I talk about this because it's been an ongoing thing in our marriage. Uh, nothing major, nothing big. It's just an issue that I've got, that I've, I've got to work through and get over. And I don't really know where this comes from. And maybe maybe I'm the only guy that deals with this, I don't think that I am, but I have a confession to make. I have a habit of running, running our cars, the gas tanks, down to very, almost to the vapors in the gas tank. I don't know what it is. It's like this obsession in me that, that I can't fill the tank up until it's like just coasting into the gas pumps. And it's almost, I don't know why, and I don't know where I developed this. I don't remember my dad necessarily doing this, but... Somewhere down the road, I have picked up this idea that I don't like going to the gas pumps and I'm going to run it down to the very bottom of my gas tank before I pull in. And when we go on trips, if I go back, we go back to visit my mom and dad or we go on vacation, uh, my wife, she, she won't say this, but she's watching out of the corner of her eye, the, the gas needle, because she knows what I, I'll do. She, she knows that I'll run it right on down to E and I'll just keep passing exit after exit after exit of gas stations because I always think I've got at least 20 more miles. And for some reason, I have to run the tank down. I don't know why that is. And the conversation will go something like this. Uh, we'll be driving along and she'll say, um, honey, I think you need to stop and get some gas. No, we got, we got plenty. I've got plenty of gas. No problem. And uh, the car that we've got now actually has a little mileage countdown over here. It tells you how many miles you have to go. I hate that thing. I despise it. That's, that's the worst use of technology in a car that's ever been developed. I don't need to know that. I intuitively know this, okay? Uh, and as we're driving down the road, and I'll drive another, you know, 45 minutes, you know, as she's looking at the gas needle, and she'll say, uh, hey, you, you really need to stop for gas. I can see the needle's on me, and here will be my response. I'll say, well, if you'll turn your head this way and look at the gauge from an angle, you'll notice that we've got at least an eighth of the tank, which is probably another 20 miles, so we're good. I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation. 
more times than I would like to admit. And yeah, I got it. I'm, I'm the problem. I understand that. I take full responsibility for that. And, and maybe, uh, maybe I need to get some uh, accountability partners or something in my life to work through this. But nonetheless, I, I want to run it down to empty. Did you know that you have, each one of you have a, a spiritual gas tank? Every one of you do. And uh, through this pandemic, for some of you, your tank has been getting a little low. What I mean by this is that emotionally, spiritually, uh, you've been running on fumes. Part of it is because you're, you're stressed maybe over your job, and, and rightfully so. I know that many of you have, have been furloughed and maybe even have lost your job, and I've been praying for you and I've uh, been lifting you up. Uh, for some of you, just the stress of not being able to get back to a routine. And your, your tank is running a little empty. Let me tell you what that looks like. There's, there's a physical aspect to it. There's an emotional aspect to it. There's, a, there's even a social aspect to it. It's, it's when your tank gets kind of empty, your, your shoulders are kind of slumped forward. Um, there's not a lot of spring in your step. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of nervousness and, yes, even some anger. And then from an emotional standpoint, that begins to spill out of your life into those around you. And if that tank continues to run on fumes, uh, it gets worse and worse. We, we've been reading, or I've been reading uh, online about all of the issues that people have been going through through this pandemic. And maybe this describes you. you you've been depressed uh, because you've been isolated and, and you just find a lot of joy in being around other people and because you haven't been able to do that. You, you've really gotten into a mode of depression. Maybe for the first time in your life, you are depressed and the glass is almost perpetually either half empty or completely empty and your spiritual gas tank and your emotional gas tank is running a little, little low. And then there's another segment of people in this pandemic who've actually kind of gotten rejuvenated through this. You've you found great pleasure and even great rest in having to step out of the routine. Before, you, you couldn't come up with a good reason to stop the routine, but now that you've got one and you've had to stop all of the extracurricular stuff and you've had to stay at home more, you've actually gotten some rest and your tank's actually been filled up. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, no matter where we see a key leader in the Bible, and there are many of them, if you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Daniel, then we can go on and on and on. Deborah, Hannah, whenever we see these key leaders in the Bible, oftentimes, almost always, if you look into their background of their life, you'll find this secondary person. It's not the primary person in the script. It's not the primary person in the narrative or, or whatever text you're looking at, but it's, it's this key person that's in this person's life. And when you, when you read the story of their life, this person that's always kind of in the background makes all the difference for that leader. As a matter of fact, if that secondary person had not been in their life uh, at key moments, at key times where there were key decisions to be made, and that secondary person who just seems to be in the background gave the right advice or gave the right words of encouragement, or gave the right boost at that very moment that that leader was able to accomplish what God had called them to accomplish. Their influence can be both for good or for bad. Those secondary folks, those people that are kind of in the background, they can either fill your tank up, or you guessed it, drain your tank out. You know who those people are, right? I know that none of you are those people, right? 
It's that person in your life that when you go to Walmart, of course, now I know things are different, but back before everything started with the pandemic, when you go to Walmart, if you saw that person before they saw you, that person would never see you because you would go a different direction. The reason you do that is because they drain the life out of you. The exact opposite of what we're going to look at this morning in the name Barnabas. He was given the nickname Encourager. And Lord, don't we need people in our life who fill our tanks up. And that's exactly what those with the gift of encouragement or exhortation does. They, they fill up the tank. Now, not everyone has the spiritual gift of exhortation or encouragement, but that, that doesn't preclude any of us from participating in this spiritual gift. As a matter of fact, what I have found out is, is it, it comes down to a choice. That all disciples of Jesus, because of the love and the grace and the encouragement that we've received from Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us, we are already wired and geared and prepared and equipped to be encouragers. And what better time to be an encourager than right now? Because the world as it is, is draining the life out of us from all of the stuff that we see going on in the news, from all that, we, that we're dealing with in the change of routines and in our families and all this craziness. What we need right now is some encouragement. And we need some encouragers who build up, who fill up your tank rather than just drain you out. Let's take a look at Paul in verse 19 of chapter 9. It says, for some days... He's with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Notice that. Paul, several things here we, we, we need to pay attention to. That as soon as Paul, Saul, meets Jesus on the Damascus road, he, he's then escorted to Damascus because he's blind. He, he ends up in the house of Judas, not Judas the disciple, but another Judas who lives in Damascus. Uh, a man by the name of Ananias is visited by the Lord, and Ananias is told to go to that household, and he'll find Paul there, or Saul, the persecutor, the persecutor of the church, that you're going to go there, you're going to lay hands on him, you're going to pray for him, he's going to receive his vision. Ananias goes, wait a minute. You mean the guy who's on his way to Damascus to probably arrest me and, and all my friends for following you? You want me to go lay hands on him and pray for him? Ananias does. The scales fall off of... Saul's eyes, and for the first time in his life, for the first time in his life, he finally sees clearly. I'm not talking about physical sight. I'm talking about spiritually. And Paul's life has changed. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the one who, who was the persecutor now becomes the proclaimer of the gospel. He becomes the one who's going to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and Jesus said that he's going to suffer for my name's sake. He's going to suffer as he follows me. And Immediately, the Bible says, and, and this, this is just hard for me to imagine, but, but also understand that the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us can empower us to do things far beyond what we're capable of doing. And we always need to understand that, that, that the Holy Spirit living in us as disciples of Christ empowers us to do things that we never thought we could do ever in our lives. And, and, and Saul immediately goes into the synagogues saying he, meaning Jesus, is the Son of God. I wonder if it's exactly the same synagogue that maybe Stephen spoke in. 
it seems to be in the same, actually it's going to be when he gets back to Jerusalem, so let me hold that for later. But in this particular synagogue, all the people had ever heard was the teaching of Judaism. And it's, in fact, Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians whom the people in this synagogue would have celebrated. They would have celebrated the fact that, that Saul had come to arrest and take these Christians back to Jerusalem to stand trial. They would have celebrated, but instead, when Saul goes into the synagogue, he preaches that Jesus is the Son of God. That phrase is only used once in the whole entire book of Acts, and it's used right here with, with Saul's preaching. A man who despised Messiah, despised Jesus Christ, had relegated him to nothing more than a false prophet, a false teacher, is now being proclaimed as the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? So the people in the synagogue are like, What is this? How, how is it that this man went from being the one who came to arrest people to the one who's now proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, as Messiah? They were dumbfounded. But in verse 22, it says, Saul increased the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And this is on the hills, right, out, right after he puts his faith in Jesus and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he begins to proclaim the gospel and begins to grow in faith. And that is the path of every disciple of Jesus Christ. First of all, as we said last week, the contrast between who you once were and who you are now. There must be a contrast. There must be a difference between who you used to be and who you are now. And out of that contrast, the world sees the difference and they go, how could it be that that person was once this and now they're this? But not only that, but we begin to engage in the ministry of proclaiming the gospel. I am fully convinced, fully convinced that the person who puts their faith in Jesus at that moment, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, can go out immediately and begin to share the gospel. It doesn't mean that they understand all the theology and all the doctrine. It doesn't mean that they understand how, how that the Bible fits together and all that has taken place. But this one thing they know, I was once lost in darkness. I met Jesus and now I am brand new. Something has changed. I don't even know how to explain it, but I'm a brand new person. And let me tell you what that person told me about coming and putting my faith in Jesus. I believe at that moment, at that moment, they have what they need to be able to share the gospel, even if they don't understand all of it theologically. Not only that, but there's growth, that, that maturing and growing up in Christ. We see it in Paul's life here. And of course, some time has passed as Paul begins to, to pour back into the, the Old Testament scriptures and, and try to see where did I miss it? I would imagine that as Paul goes back through the Old Testament, he's asking himself this question over and over. How did I miss the Messiah? Thankfully, he didn't. He met him on the Damascus Road. But in, in all of his theological training, I, I would imagine that Paul is wondering, how in the world are all of my brothers who are in Judaism, how can they possibly deny that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah? After he came and he died and he resurrected, and, and, and the Old Testament prophets were pointing to that. How could that be? He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, and he, he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Can you imagine Paul taking the Old Testament 
and now proclaiming how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, as you can imagine, the people of Damascus, the Jerusalem, the Jewish people of Damascus, and eventually when he gets to Jerusalem, are not going to take too kindly to this. If you go to Galatians chapter 1, you don't have to, but Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, we find there that Paul gives us a little bit of background in what's happening here. He, he says that eventually, after he went to Damascus, he'll spend some time in Damascus, as we see right here. Luke doesn't give us this account, but Paul does in Galatians. Paul says that he then goes to Arabia for three years. If you'll notice in verse 23, it says this, when many days had passed, Luke kind of gives an indication there that he's talking about this time that, that Paul took, and it was three years that he goes to Arabia, and while he's in Arabia, he's preaching the gospel, but he's also digging into the Old Testament, and he's growing as a disciple and as a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel. In other words, he's being equipped while he's serving the people of Arabia and preaching the gospel. And then after that, He'll come back to Damascus for a little while, and then he'll eventually he'll make his way to Jerusalem. And this is what it says in verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but they were, their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples, notice that. Paul already has disciples at this, by this point, people who are following him as an example. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So when when Paul comes back to Damascus after being gone for three years in Arabia, uh, and also in Galatians it says that one of the kings of that particular area had it out for Paul to kill him because he was proclaiming the gospel. They set up a trap for him at the gates. The disciples find out about it. Paul's disciples find out about it, the ones who were following him and being mentored by Paul. And they take Paul and they lure him in a basket down outside the wall so that he can escape. And guess where he goes next? He goes to Jerusalem. Verse 25, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And I want you to get this picture. So on the one hand, Saul, Paul, has been rejected by his own people. Those of the Judaism, those of, those of the Jewish faith, they have, they have all rejected Paul because Paul is now a traitor. Paul is now a turncoat. Paul has now joined the enemy. And now with incredible veracity and with incredible hatred, the Jewish people in Damascus and Jerusalem hate Paul to even a greater degree than those Christians that they've been wanting to arrest. And you know why they would hate Paul, right? Paul was one of theirs. Paul was one of their main leaders. He was the one who was being groomed to be a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Everything on his resume said that he was going to be the guy for the future of Judaism. And now he's turned and he's went to Christianity. He's went to the way. And Paul is hated with an incredible, incredible hatred. But sure, certainly the disciples will accept him, right? So when he gets to Jerusalem, where this, the hotbed of Christianity in Jerusalem, of course, it has spread to places like Samaria and Judea, even, even the Galilee, Luke mentions here in this text. So certainly if he goes to like the starting place of Christianity, that's where he's going to be accepted. So he goes down to Jerusalem 
And when, when the disciples see him, not, not necessarily apostles yet, but the disciples, those in the crowd, those leaders who've been raised up in the New Testament church, they see Saul and they are very, very standoffish. They're not accepting of him because they're not quite sure what to make of this. So not only do those of Judaism have rejected Saul, but initially the body of Christ has rejected him. And you know why? They're, they're struggling with, could this man really be the real deal? Could, could this man who caused so much pain to their own brothers and sisters in Christ, could, could this guy really be the real deal? Or could it be that he's faking the whole thing just to try to get interest into the church to find out where the leaders are so that they could then be arrested, put on trial, and possibly even put to death? Is, is, he, is he a wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, initially, that's what everyone was thinking. And then at verse 27, somebody comes back into the picture that we haven't talked about since Acts chapter 4. Haven't talked about him. He's not, he's not been in the foreground of what we've been looking at. He's kind of been in the background. We've had no mention of him. The only mention we've had of Barnabas is in Acts 4. Uh, theologians and historians tell us that, that Barnabas probably came to faith in Christ in those early, early waves of Christianity, possibly, maybe even when Peter preached right out of Pentecost, who knows, but he's came to faith in Christ and he's been growing and maturing in faith. We see that in Acts 4. And in Acts 4, we see that Barnabas is mentioned there simply because he sells a piece of property and he gives the full amount to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. As a matter of fact, Barnabas becomes the contrast to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. He's a godly man. He's a man who has put his full faith in Jesus Christ and is growing. Haven't heard a thing about him until now. He's like one of those secondary characters we talked about, right? He's kind of in the background, but now he's going to come forward. And I would argue that in verse 27, Barnabas is not going to be the secondary. He's going to be the primary. Because if it were not for what Barnabas, Barnabas does in this moment, I'm not exactly sure how this would have went. Notice what happens, verse 27. But Barnabas took him, that is Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, how does, how does Barnabas know all this? We don't know. I don't know how Barnabas knows Paul's testimony of what happened on the road to Damascus and what's been happening in Damascus. I don't know how Barnabas knows this, but he knows, and he knows the details. And Barnabas is willing to put himself into this controversy. Barnabas is willing to step forward out of the background and be an advocate for Saul. That's what all encouragers do. Encouragers are willing to step into the mess, whatever mess you find yourself in, and re regardless of the cost, regardless of what it might mean to them or what it might cost them, they see that the, that the need for encouragement in your life is so important at that moment. They're not really concerned about circumstances or anything else. They're not concerned about getting involved. They're not concerned about having to deal with whatever you're dealing with. They're not concerned about having to hear all of your problems. Encouragers instinctively step into the mess for the sole purpose of building you up and building me up. Thank God for them. Barnabas, Barnabas is the primary here, not, not Paul. Paul hasn't 
got there yet. It's going to be a little while before Paul becomes that missionary and church planter that we all know and love. It's going to happen. But right now in this moment, Barnabas is taking the lead. And he's simply being an advocate for Paul. Can you imagine what this did for Paul? Paul Paul's got nobody. He's got, a few, he's got a few friends and a few disciples in Damascus. But he really needs to meet with the apostles. He really needs to sit down and talk with Peter and James. And that's exactly what happens as Paul's account in Galatians gives us that he met with Peter and James. But Barnabas is the key. Barnabas is going to key, be the key a few more times as we get on into the book of Acts. But out of the shadows comes Barnabas at exactly the right time, at exactly when Saul needed him, and does exactly what God needs Saul, uh, Barnabas to do for Saul in that moment because Saul has a mission to accomplish. And Barnabas becomes integral to that mission. Barnabas the encourager. Notice what happens. And after he brings Barnabas to the apostles. And, and Barnabas is the one who's speaking. Barnabas is advocating for Saul. Look at verse 28. So he went in and out, Saul, among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he, dispute, and he, he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists. Remember the Hellenists? They are Greek-speaking Jews. These are Jewish people who have lived outside of Jerusalem and Judea, who have taken on a Greek culture. Paul is talking with them, debating with them, arguing with them that Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And guess what happens? They were seeking to kill him. So, so Paul the persecutor becomes Paul the proclaimer of the gospel, but now Paul is going to become the persecuted. He's already been ran out of Damascus. That's going to be the trend for the rest of his life. Wherever he goes, Wherever he preaches, wherever he plants a church, he's going to be hated. He's going to be run out of town. He's going to be beaten. Exactly what Jesus said would happen, that he's going to suffer for the cause of the gospel, is already beginning. So he goes out and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's, he's, he's engaging with the community around him. And then they're going to seek to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So they're going to send Paul back to his hometown, to Tarsus. They're going to send him back to Tarsus. And here's the amazing thing. After, after Paul is sent to Tarsus, it'll be 10 years, 10 years before Barnabas and Paul see each other again. We won't see that until Acts chapter 11, verse 25, when Barnabas is sent to Antioch. But it'll be 10 years before Barnabas and Paul are able to see each other again. And in this moment, in this time, what Paul needed more than anything else was an advocate and an encouragement, and Barnabas provided both. Barnabas filled up Paul's tank when it was drained down to fumes. And then Luke adds this in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, that's the only mention of disciples in Galilee, but they're there. Luke mentions it. He says, in all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they had peace, and they were being built up or edified. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. Here's another moment where Luke steps in and as, as narrator of the event says, now let me just tell you what's going on. 
that the gospel has spread beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria. It's spread all the way up into Galilee. The gospel is spreading, and as a matter of fact, historians and theologians tell us that at this moment, there comes this element of peace in the church. Things kind of calm down a little bit, but not for the church. The church keeps growing and edifying and discipling and reaching. Paul heads off to Tarsus. And it'll be 10 years before he and Barnabas meet each other. Isn't that, isn't that exactly how it is with some encouragers that you've got in your life? There, there may be times and years go by before you hear from them, and all of a sudden, at just the right moment, at just the right time in your life, you get that card in the mail. Or you get that text on your phone. Or you get that message on Facebook that you haven't, maybe they've moved away, but at just the right time, it's almost like these encouragers, the, these people who are, who are doing this, and this is their ministry, it's almost like they have this, Six cents where they know the moment you need encouragement. I cannot, I've got a drawer over there in my desk in the office. It's, it's the drawer right to my right. I can pull that drawer out. Here's what you'll find in that drawer. You'll find Christmas cards and Thanksgiving cards and just cards for any occasion and then cards with no occasion at all. And I can flip through those cards and there'll be paragraphs written inside those cards of encouragement from folks just like you who at the, exactly the moment I needed it is as though the Holy Spirit prompted you and said, I don't know why, I don't know what's going on, but I've got I've to pray for the staff. I've got to pray for the pastor. I've got to pray for my friend or I've got to write them a card I've got to give them a phone call. And you won't rest until you do. I'm so thankful for those of you who have that gift. But listen, for those of you, may, you, may, those of you who may or are not gifted that way, it doesn't give us an excuse to not be the person who builds others up rather than draining them empty. There's a guy by the name of Gregory of Nyssa. He's an early church father about the fourth century. And this is what he wrote. I want you to I want you to hear this. I want to read this for you directly so you get it. He was he was just writing about the church and, and writing about encouragement and exhortation. And, and listen to this quote. At horse races, the spectators intent on victory shout to their favorites in the contest. From the balcony they incite the rider to keener effort, urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing the air with their outstretched hand. Instead of a whip, this is the picture that he paints that if you look at a horse race, I've never been to a horse race, but if you, you imagine it on TV or maybe a, a NASCAR race or, or some kind of other race where, where the people in the stands are, are cheering for a particular driver or for a particular horse rider, they're up there and they're yelling and screaming and they're waving their arms as if they have the ability to, to help their person get to the front. Isn't it the strangest thing? You can see it football as well. You know, you're, you're about to get that first down. And you're sitting on the edge of your seat and the, and the, and the ball snapped and, and the person is running and you're trying, you're waving your arms, trying to push your person or your race car driver, your horse rider to the front so that they win. Isn't that the oddest thing? As if we have the ability to actually do that, right? We're sitting in front of a TV or sitting in a high balcony at a race and we're up there yelling our brains out for our particular favorite to get to the front. And then Gregory of Nyssa says this. He says, I seem to be doing the same thing myself. Most valued friend and brother, while you are competing admirably in the divine race, straining constantly for the prize of the heavenly calling, I exhort, urge, and encourage you vigorously. That's exactly what encouragers do. 
They're up in the balcony and they're yelling and they're saying, you got this, you can push through this, you're gonna get through the pandemic, you're gonna get back to a stage of life where you're gonna have people around you, you're gonna get back to that place, but just keep holding on, you keep running, you keep moving forward, you keep putting your faith in Jesus, you keep walking with him. And not only for those who are disciples, but you think about what an encourager does for the person who's lost, who are also discouraged. What an incredible testimony it would be to that person who is lost to be that encourager who's rooting them on, not only just towards the cross, but rooting for their marriage to work, rooting for their kids to be healthy, rooting for them just as much as we are, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but rooting for that friend who's lost, who's never come to faith in Christ, that you are their advocate, that you step into the fray, you're not worried about the circumstances and all the issues. But to simply encourage an advocate, to be an advocate for someone else. I said earlier about Saul going into the synagogues and teaching, and in Jerusalem, he's out there teaching. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Saul whose life has been changed by Christ, to be out in the same streets, possibly the same synagogues that Stephen proclaimed that great sermon in that we see in Acts 7. Can you imagine what's running through Saul's mind? That, that, that he was standing there holding the coats as they stoned Stephen to death, and now he's been changed. He's now a proclaimer of the gospel, and now he's being persecuted. But thank God for friends like Barnabas who were there at the right moment, at the right point in time to advocate for someone so that they could fulfill what God had called them to do. Listen, the ministry of exhortation, the ministry of encouragement, that ministry is vital to this local body, but also especially now. The social distancing and everything else that's going on You've seen it, haven't you? You've seen everyone's shoulders slumped over. You've seen the tension. You've seen the anger. You've seen this, just the depression on people's faces. Well, maybe you, maybe you're the one that's going to fill up that tank. Maybe you're the one that's going to help that person who's running on fumes see it from a different perspective and keep running the race. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, thank you for the encouragement that comes through the Holy Spirit. In times like these, Father, your presence and your power is tangible, it's, it's real. Father, I know that through the shared testimonies of people that have emailed me and called me, even though they're not enjoying this time, Father, they are hearing your voice hearing it louder than they've ever heard it before. So, Father, we say thank you for that. Father, we pray for those whose tanks are empty, who are running on fumes. And, Father, depression, sadness, just this, this wave of darkness is just bearing upon their soul. Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through your knowledge of what they're going through, raise up an encourager, an advocate, to step into that person's life at just the right moment with just the right words to help fill that tank up. Father, help them to also have their tank filled by the encouragement of your word.
that even if we, even if time goes by and we don't get the phone call or the card, Lord, in your word, your promises, and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we're never truly alone. And Father, it's through times where we are with you at your feet are some of the most richest, encouraging moments that any person could ever sense. Father, have your will in your way. Bless our congregation. Build them up for the one that is lost. I pray, Father, that they would certainly find encouragement, not just to, to take another step, but to take another step towards the cross, to take another step towards repentance and faith. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 